ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. G'day, welcome to AM. It's Wednesday the 28th of February. I'm David Lipson coming to you from Gadigal Land in Sydney. The families of Luke Davies and Jesse Baird have visited the New South Wales Southern Tablelands where police yesterday discovered two bodies. They're confident are those of the missing couple. Police say the bodies were found with assistance from the man accused of the murders, serving officer Bo Lamar Condon. It's alleged the murders took place last Monday at Mr Baird's home in the inner Sydney suburb of Paddington. The ABC Isabel Rowe has been covering the story. Isabel, police are still at the scene where they found two bodies yesterday. What's the latest? They will remain there this morning, picking up any pieces of evidence they believe are relevant to their investigation. This was a discovery that was made in the middle of the day yesterday. Police had been searching a property at Bungonia near Goulburn, For about two days earlier, they had police divers and they had police walking on foot throughout the land. It was a property that they understood uh, was linked to the investigation. But it turns out that 20 minutes down the road, in fact, a road that led police back to Sydney was the place where they found what they strongly believe are the bodies of Luke Davies and Jesse Baird. Those bodies, according to police, were found in two surf bags and near a fence line near an entrance to the property. So not too far off the road where people had been driving up and down to get to the property that they were searching, uh, where they thought that the men would be. Police told us in this press conference yesterday that the reason they were led to this second site is that they ended up actually getting some information from the Constable Bolomar Condon, the man who has been charged with two counts of murder over this investigation. It's believed he eventually got legal counsel uh, while he was in jail. Police visited him yesterday morning and were able to get him to assist with the investigation for the first time. And so they returned uh, to Bungonia to that site 20 minutes from where they were searching and found the two men. And we understand last night Jesse Baird's family and Luke Davies' family have been to the property and they have identified the bodies. That was an incredibly sad sight to see. We've seen some photos and pictures of cars driving in and out of the site. What must have been uh, an awful, awful experience for them. Yeah, absolutely. There's also been a real spotlight on the police as a serving officers accused of the murders and a police issue handgun is allegedly involved. Now, New South Wales police were asked not to march in the Sydney Mardi Gras. Now the AFP won't march either. Yes. So the board of the Mardi Gras issued a statement late uh, the night before last saying that they would like the New South Wales police not to come. They said that the Mardi Gras was a time for celebration and for coming together, but it was a difficult decision. They just thought that the presence of New South Wales police in this circumstance would upset people, essentially. And the New South Wales Police Commissioner, Karen Webb, has pushed back on that quite publicly. She's said that she didn't think it was a necessary decision. She said yesterday in a press conference that she was still in talks with the board to perhaps have officers uh, walk without their uniform. But interestingly, the Australian Federal Police have volunteered not to be part of it. So they saw that request to the New South Wales Police and they've issued a statement noting that and they said they've not taken their decision lightly either. 
but they say we acknowledge how some in the community are feeling about the blue uniform and we've informed the event organisers of the decision. So it will be interesting to see whether that decision from the AFP has any influence over what the New South Wales police end up doing about that. Isabel Rowe there. The Albanese government's overhaul of the Stage 3 income tax cuts passed the Senate overnight, meaning the changes will take effect from July 1st. The opposition offered its support, despite arguing higher income earners had been betrayed. Speaking after the passage of the bill, the Prime Minister pointed to this weekend's by-election in the outer Melbourne seat of Dunkley, saying the government wanted every voter there to get a tax cut. There is a lot at stake for the government in Dunkley. Our political reporter Chantelle Alcuri takes us through what the outcome could mean. The Dunkley by-election will prove a crucial test for both major parties and all eyes are on whether it'll deliver the Prime Minister a birthday win. I mean, you are feeling the pressure, aren't you, right now? Look at the polls. Dutton's got some swagger. Oh, look, what we're doing is getting on with the job of addressing cost of living. Cost of living is shaping up to be the main issue on the minds of voters in Dunkley and Deputy Opposition Leader Susan Lee agrees. The people of Dunkley were all talking about one thing, the cost of living. While Labor holds the seat by a margin of 6.3%, Dunkley has changed between the major parties several times since the 1980s. Paul Strangio is the Emeritus Professor of Politics at Monash University. He says the by-election will test the Liberal Party's efforts to gain ground in Victoria, which has proved a problem for the opposition in recent history. If the Liberal Party is unable to win back you know, the affluent inner city seats that it lost to the Teals in 2022, its real focus will be if it's going to have any chance of regaining government will be on the, in the outer suburbs. And in many ways, Dunkley's a quintessential outer suburban seat. Paul Strangio says the by-election could also send Labor a clear message on how its changes to the Stage 3 tax cuts were received by voters, boosting the tax break offered to lower and middle-income earners. The opposition has been trying to pin on Anthony Albanese because of that change that he can't be trusted. Voters in Dunkley have been bombarded with anti-Labor attack ads by Conservative lobby group Advance Australia. The group was also responsible for a large portion of the No campaign ads ahead of the referendum for an Indigenous voice to Parliament. Paul Strangio says it's a question of whether it will have an impact on voters. There's been a lot of reportage that Advance is spending big on this electorate and campaigning very hard against the Labor government. William Bowe is an election analyst and the publisher of the Poll Bludger website. He says Advance Australia is using hard-hitting negative attack advertising to draw voters to the recent release of detainees from immigration detention after the High Court ruled it unlawful. That has sort of left the Liberal Party free to run a positive campaign on their part, putting distance between them and the negativity of the anti-Labor campaign. He says while many believed their tactics proved successful in the referendum, they were previously met with a negative reception in seats won by independents. This sort of brand of heavy-hitting, heart-attack advertising doesn't go down well among sort of the more professional, educated, inner urban sort of seats. Dunkley is a more, you know, working middle class sort of electorate. Voters in Dunkley will head to the polls this Saturday. Chantelle Alcuri with that report. 
The Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide found one of the things compounding trauma for returned servicemen and women was the complex system for seeking entitlements, compensation and rehabilitation, so much so that it could be a contributing factor to those who take their lives. This morning, the government's releasing its long-awaited exposure draft legislation aimed at simplifying and harmonising the century-old system. The Minister for Veterans Affairs is Matt Keogh. I spoke to him earlier. Matt Keogh, thanks for being with us. Just explain first why streamlining the veterans' compensation system is so important. Uh, It's great to be with you. Look, the reality is that over 100 years, we've had three different schemes of veterans legislation uh, grow organically over time. And it's meant that the system is very, very complex for veterans to understand, but also for the department to process. It means veterans don't understand what they're entitled to. And it really blows out the time that it takes them to get access to the services and supports that they need and deserve. And so the Royal Commission into Defence and Veteran Suicide in its uh, interim report recommended that this set of three different types of schemes supporting veterans needs to be simplified and harmonised and that's what we're getting about doing. Right, so you're folding those three acts that deal with compensation for veterans into one, standardising all provisions. It looks to me like most veterans making claims will be better off, some much better off. Can you guarantee that no veteran will be worse off as a result of this? Yeah, so what we're doing is grandparenting veterans that are already getting benefits under each of the three different schemes. So they'll continue to receive what they're already getting. So no veteran uh, will be worse off there, but it'll make sure that it's simpler for veterans bringing new claims because all new claims would be dealt with under one single piece of legislation. That's the 21st century uh, MRCA, which veterans will be familiar with, um, which is the most up-to-date piece of legislation for veterans. We'll be making some enhancements to that as well to make sure that we've got a simplified system, that it's more harmonised across the board, but veterans who are already getting entitlements are not going to be seeing any negative changes to their circumstance. What about those in the future that are making claims? Because one of the scenarios in the information booklet shows a 62-year-old who lodges a new claim for a service-related shoulder injury would get $21,000 instead of $43,000 as a lump sum. Yeah, so this is a really uh, crucial enhancement that we're making here because uh, in that particular scenario that you outline, that veteran would never have been entitled to a gold card. Mm. And that's been a real bugbear amongst the veteran community. And in fact, the Productivity Commission recommended to government that we don't expand the uh, eligibility for gold cards. But what we are doing is that that veteran in that scenario you've identified would also get access to a gold card, which means they'd be covered for all of their health conditions related to service or not. And that's a real benefit for veterans on an ongoing basis as well every year. There's also a greater funeral allowance, higher travel reimbursement for treatment, more ability for special assistance to be granted to veterans and their children. This is all really important stuff for veterans, but have you modelled how much more it'll cost the government? Uh, Look, we have been working on what the cost uh, will be, and at this stage, this is an exposure draft of legislation. So we understand that by moving uh, more veterans into uh, the Merca, that will mean that there will be some costs to government. But what's important is we support our veteran community and they get access to the support and the entitlements that they need. What is the cost then? 
Well, because we're still at the exposure draft stage, there may be changes that come to this legislation before we get to entering this into Parliament. Well, it, I'm not uh, giving a ballpark figure on this at this stage because it's an exposure draft and we want to make sure we get it right before we enter, bring the actual legislation uh, to Parliament. What's important is that we're able to consult with how this legislation works. So, for example, uh, our proposal here uh, will see the introduction into the Merca of what's called an additional disablement amount, which is the equivalent, roughly, of what uh, something that exists in the Veterans Entitlements Act at the moment called the Extreme Disablement Adjustment. Uh, that's something that veterans uh, had some strong views on making sure was replicated in the new legislation. Uh, we, we've proposed that in what we've put forward in this exposure draft, an example of how people were very positive, but we've also listened to the feedback that we received. The department's also been working very hard to clear the backlog of claims. Just briefly, how close are you to doing that? Well, essentially, we're, we're through that backlog, which means that now when someone puts in a claim, if you were to put in a claim right now, uh, David, that claim would be with someone being reviewed within 14 days uh, instead of having to wait. And that's a really important achievement that we've gotten to that point. Now, that doesn't mean that your claim is processed instantaneously. There's assessments that need to be made, uh, medical reports that need to be reviewed. And of course, for many veterans, they've had to wait in some cases, hundreds of days to get to this point now where their claim is being assessed. But it's great now that uh, we're effectively through that backlog, back to what's a business-as-usual scenario where you lodge a claim, someone's looking at it within two weeks. Matt Keogh, thank you. Great to be with you. And Matt Keogh is the Minister for Veterans Affairs. Israel and Hamas have warned against being overly optimistic that a hostage for ceasefire deal in Gaza could be reached by the end of this week. The US President Joe Biden says he hopes there's a ceasefire in place by next Monday, as the reported death toll in Gaza approaches 30,000. Each of those people have a name and a story, including one young couple deeply in love, newly married and then killed two days later by an Israeli airstrike. Our Middle East correspondent, Alison Horn, has this story, and a warning, it contains distressing content. Every day, Abd al-Salam Sayed Deeb walks among the ruins of a recent Israeli airstrike. He's looking for pieces of his daughter's body. I'm searching for the dead corpse of my daughter. My daughter has died a martyr. That's a given. Yet I need to see her dead body and hold her, kiss her goodbye. The last time Abed saw his daughter Mariam, she was getting married to her fiancé Abdullah. The pair was engaged before the war and initially put their nuptials on hold to focus on their survival. But as the months dragged on with no end in sight, the horror, Abed explains the two wanted to be together. They decided to get married during the war because you can see the situation. There is nothing to be happy about. We're shattered everywhere. We wanted them to be happy. After the wedding, the newlyweds left for a friend's chalet near the Gazan city of Rafa. Then, two days later, their honeymoon suite was bombed by Israel. <laughs> Mariam's mother, Galia Joma Mahmoud Deep, breaks down, crying and praying as she clutches the only possessions left of her child, a broken phone and Mariam's identification papers. She did not have time to be happy. She was a bride for two days and then she died. 
Gazan health authorities say at least six others, including children, were killed in the airstrike. Israel hasn't responded to AM's questions about this specific attack. Mariam's father is left with little but questions for why his eldest daughter was killed. We don't want war. We want nothing. We just want to live a life in dignity and still be alive. Dignity, he says, he's not able to find for his daughter, even in death. This is Alison Horn in Jerusalem reporting for AM. Surfing is a big part of Australia's beach culture, but it's probably not a sport you'd normally associate with people who are blind. Big swells, unpredictable currents and crowds of people. The obstacles in the ocean are nearly endless. Now, one regional surf school is enlisting the help of a four-time world champion surfer who is blind to help run lessons for people who are vision impaired. The ABC's National Disability Affairs reporter, Naz Campanella, went along. Will O'Neill has lived by the ocean his whole life. It doesn't matter whether I'm in it, on it, around it. Like I said, I just feel at peace. The father and grandfather is vision impaired. He's always wanted to surf, but hasn't had the opportunity until now. He's about to take his first surfing lesson. It's been a mystery whether I could actually stand up on a surfboard. Really curious to see if I can do this. You're probably wondering how a person who can't see could surf in the first place. Matt Formston is blind and chases some of the biggest waves around the world. As I feel the wave sucking, because as a wave comes to you it sucks, so there's, feel, there's a feel sense there. And that helps me navigate to get out the back and then I can hear where the waves are breaking from. Otherwise I use other people as spotters and they tell me, they give me verbal information as to what, where the wave's coming from or what direction it's going in. And then once I'm on the wave, my, my front foot becomes my cane like it is on land. And uh, so as I'm going down the wave, I can feel how steep it is. The four-time world champion is assisting the team at the Central Coast Surf Academy in New South Wales. The school is running a six-week program of lessons for people who are blind, funded partly through disability services provider Vision Australia. Matt Formston first shows the students how to read the ocean. I'll teach them to feel, the, like, put their hands on the surface of the water, feel the waves washing around them, and I'll talk them through what the ocean's doing. The owner of the surf school, Amy Donohoe, says having Matt's expertise has been invaluable for adapting her classes. We spend a lot of time making sure that we've got large amount of coaches, so participants have someone with them at all times, so we make sure that the whole experience feels safe, comfortable and fun. She says it's vital all the coaches give good verbal descriptions about how and when to sit, lay, paddle and eventually stand on the board. Three, two, one, hold. With a vision impaired surfer that we would need to have a high level of guidance and a high level of trust. So instead of like actually seeing the white water in the wave, we want to make sure that we create that safe space and we're able to hold onto the back of the surfboard right along with the surfer and prompt the surfer then to actually, okay, now let's get up, let's go now. So we might use our, our vocabulary a little bit more than um, visual. Back on the shore, Will O'Neill is emerging from the water after catching his first waves. And he's pretty pleased with his efforts. He admits it was tough, but he's keen to do it all over again. Oh, brilliant. It's not easy to be able to understand what the waves are doing to try to get up from, from your belly to your knees to your feet. 
They say it takes a lifetime to do this stuff. I think I'm going to spend the rest of my life trying to nail it. <laughs> yeah, it's hard enough with 2020 vision. 53-year-old Gromit Will O'Neill there, ending that report by Naz Campanella. And that's AM for today. Thanks for your company. I'm David Lipson. Hi, I'm Sam Hawley, host of the ABC News Daily Podcast. The board of the Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras has asked police not to march this weekend. It comes on a difficult week for the force after a senior constable was charged with the alleged murder of Sydney couple Jesse Baird and Luke Davies. But police participation in the event has long caused controversy. Today, we unpack why. Look for the ABC News Daily Podcast on the ABC Listen app.